Hello coaches, welcome back or welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Mullins. My guest this week is Kevin Epley, the 2019 ITA NCA Division I Women's Coach of the Year. Kevin's head coaching career began at Fresno State in 2000. He then moved out east to William & Mary and after five highly successful seasons, he decided to take a break from college tennis to coach on the WTA Tour and he even opened a bakery in Colorado. He made his return back to the college game in 2012 when he was named the head women's coach at the University of South Carolina. Under his guidance, the team's results have improved every year and have managed to break numerous program records along the way. In this podcast, we discuss some of the lessons he learned from Billie Jean King and several of the top female tennis players of all time, plus how the college tennis game has evolved and his approach to learning and coaching. This podcast runs a little longer than usual, but it's well worth sticking it out as Kevin shares some great lessons for coaches at any stage of their career. I hope you get something out of our conversation. Coach Kevin Epley, welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. Thanks for coming on. I'm really happy to be here with you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> okay. So... I was really fortunate to catch the start of your head coaching career at Fresno State during my junior and senior year. Can you tell me a little bit about your first few years at Fresno and, and maybe some of the work you were doing at the same time with the Olympic team and, and Billie Jean King? Well, you, are you taking me back a little bit and uh, 19, you know, thinking about 1999. That little... Or was it 2000? Yeah. Yeah. 2000, I believe. 2000, yeah, you got yeah. me thinking about that thought you might ask that so um but it, it was such a uh it was such a whirlwind time for me you know i had uh i had shirked the corporate world i was about to sign some papers to to go into finance and somebody uh thwarted that direction for me it thankfully told me not to do it and i went to voluntaries for a year and then uh made some good connections there and then um I went to Alabama, worked with Jenny Mines. I had a great time with her, even though our team was struggling a little bit. We were kind of in a cultural redevelopment. And then I uh, moved uh, to Arizona, worked with Brad Dancer, whom I had met at Voluntaries. And then um, at that time had begun, you know, some work around that time with, with some professional players. Um, obviously, you know, as you know, I worked with the Fed Cup team for a number of years there and um, got to meet Billie Jean King, who was sort of instrumental in, in helping me choose a direction as far as my career goes and, and what my message was going to be. And I uh, had the opportunity to work with some players like uh, Patty Schneider for a summer. I think she was eight in the world at the time and had to travel with Lindsay Davenport and coach some world team tennis. Some real exciting you know, times for me. Yeah. And uh, as I came to Fresno, uh, I guess that was 2000. Uh, that summer, I'd been in St. Louis with World Team Tennis Team um, with Andy Roddick as an 18-year-old on my team. And that was quite an experience. <laughs> and traveling around in a van with uh, Andy for, for a while was, was pretty neat. Wow. And uh, then that's, yeah. And then that fall went to... Um, uh, went to the Olympics and uh, was just all sorts of things going on. I, you know, we were starting a camp in France, uh, a, sort of a developmental camp in South France. I, I had this fancy idea that I was going to, you know, spend my summers in Europe. I remember that. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, 
Uh, yeah. 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 You kept like, trying uh, to get me over there, but I never would come. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was good. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Which I just had so many things going on um, that I look back on now. It's hard. It's kind of hard to believe. Mm. Um, you know, that first semester at Fresno, I was, I wasn't really there that much because I was recruiting and um, that fall semester and I was in uh, Sydney with the Olympic team. And uh, then I came back, I got, you know, deathly ill. I was sort of laid up for a few, I think three weeks or something. So, I mean, that's, there, there's your fall right there. Yeah. Um, but just, a, it was a really incredible time. I'm sure you, you know, very well, you know, our memories. I mean, when we get together, we talk about uh, your team in particular. I mean, I almost didn't, I almost didn't come there. Um, I was, as I was saying, I was working at, uh, at uh, Arizona and I put in my application and they overlooked me until they they had I think they had like three or four candidates and they asked uh, Michael Hegarty, the coach at the time and your coach, to look through see if they missed anybody and he came across my uh, application and resume and said oh, you may want to take a look at this guy he's got a lot going on yeah and so uh, they brought me in as sort of an afterthought and <laughs> and there you have it I spent a, I spent about three hours in a Holiday Inn hotel room with Hegarty and he was just <laughs> grilling me. <laughs> <laughs> and you blew them away. But uh, yeah, well, it was. Uh, I mean, the community in Fresno. I mean, I, I haven't been there in a while. I'm not sure how it is now. But you know, we had Ken Robeson with that with the Fresno Bee, who was yeah. reporting on us all the time. Um, we had those crowds that would come, and it was just it really felt the, the energy we had at those home matches. I, I don't know that I've seen any anywhere else. Yeah, and obviously your team was was just an amazing team to watch. Uh, I, we talk often about the idea, you know, the, you guys just had this this work hard, play hard, this sort of underlying wit that went on. I think it was the Irish dry humor, <laughs> and Hagerty's Australian humor, Peter Luchek's yeah. like steely presence, and uh, and just Hagerty's like you know running commentary. It was just an amazing thing to watch. It must have been incredible to play for. <laughs> Yeah, it um, was quite the experience. And, and we were fortunate. Uh, we were fortunate enough to have a good year. That kind of launched my career. I think we got to the top ten in the nation for a while yeah. there, and and that was the beginning. That was uh, well, that was uh, an incredible time and, and something to look back on. I look back very fondly. Yeah, as as I do too. But yeah, as as, as reflecting upon this as well, and and even though you you had so much going on, uh, you still, like you said, out, out of the gates, put together a really great team at at Fresno, and and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed watching you guys play, and also um watching you operate i mean i i was starting to think about probably in my junior year that 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 was a direction i wanted to go was was college tennis and and similar to yourself i i worked in finance initially but but also always had in the back of my head so i was starting to kind of look around and kind of see you know what what does this job right. actually entail and and i always felt like you were ahead of the curve you know that as we were doing our little jog around and, you know, high knees and butt kicks, you were out there doing, you know, these dynamic warm ups. You had the bands, you had the medicine balls and we'd we'd make fun and we'd say, oh, these guys aren't even working out. They're soft. But but nobody else was really doing that at the time. And that, that's just, you know, um, so so where where did that come from? How? And I think you've managed to stay ahead of that. But wh why? 
where, where were you getting those ideas? Was this just exposing yourself to, you know, lots of different um, opportunities? You know, you were surrounded, you were at Boletaries, you're working with Billie Jean King, you're working with some of the top players in the world. But, uh, you know, where where did that come from? And how did you have the, the I guess, foresight to, to implement those things and get your players to buy into it as well? Well, you know, I mean, gosh, I had I had kind of forgotten that we, that we were doing all that stuff. I mean, again, it's been so long ago. But the, the uh, you know, that I certainly can't take credit for 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 that stuff. That didn't, you know, I didn't dream that up. Sure. But I was very fortunate at Boletaries. You know, as you get older, uh, these relationships you have, and you see how other people's careers pan out and how successful they become. Um, and you look back and you go, wow, I was there. I was there at the beginning of that. And there was a young man named Mark Verstegen at Boletaries. <laughs> I had so many connections at Boletaries. That nine months just really impacted me with the people I met. But he was one of them. Yeah. And uh, he was sort of at the core, uh, well, at the beginning of the core revolution. He was right. the person that was, you know, implementing this stuff. He was the guy that was talking about dynamic stretches. Um, he had this little workout room in the corner of the academy and, you know, they called it API and just a really friendly guy. And I'd go out there and work out and he would, he just had this way about him. I mean, he was just so intense, but so enthusiastic and energetic. He'd have Anna Kornikova in there, Tommy Hosh, Sharapova is an eight year old. And they would, they would grind away. He was a big believer in Versa climbers that he had brought from Washington state, and he was just way ahead of the curve. I mean, he was saying things that, uh, you know, we had, we had never heard. I mean, in college, you know, in the nineties, we were static stretching before right. and after, and he just shot us out, shot that out of the sky immediately. None of us were doing any of that, but he was also very militant. You see these people doing these dynamic stretches now and they they kind of flop around when they were doing it, but he was very militant about exactly how your shoulders were aligned, how your, your, you know, your toe to shin angles as you were doing these things. Um, so, and, and I, I, soon after that, um, he got called up, I guess he had an investor, Adidas invested in him and he went out to, uh, your area there now, I guess, right. uh, Tempe, Arizona and yeah. built API and, right. And his whole career took off. I mean, he was in fit, men's fitness. He's got facilities all over the place. I think they're working with uh, in the corporate world a little bit. I think they're called Exos now. But he was he was the one that sort of pushed pushed me in, in that direction. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was a, a pretty you know that was a pretty neat thing. I do remember you guys laughed at us a lot, as I recall. But <laughs> we just kept plugging away. It was all good humor. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, can you can you share with maybe the audience some some stories about working with kind of those best players in the world and and being around the you know Tommy Haas and Anna Kornikova and then working with players like Patty Schneider and and Lindsay Davenport? Is there any lessons that really stand out that you still apply to working with players and teams today? Well. Yeah. I mean, again, it's one of those things that you look back on now and you're just so thankful to have had those experiences when you're in them. You don't really know the gravity of it, but being around a young Serena Williams and, and seeing her process of breaking through some barriers at, at critical times and, 
uh, like I was saying, uh, Andy Roddick as a young 18 year old, when you're there, it's sort of, you know, here's the up and coming guy, you know, but you look back and you look back at his career and all his accomplishment and know that you had a moment at the beginning of it is a, is pretty neat, but the, you know, overall, I mean, the biggest influences out of, out of those times were, were particular stories, um, you know, with, with some of the, some of the athletes uh, I was working with, or at least even just observing what they do, because for all practical purposes, they were much higher quality athletes than myself. Um, you know, being a college, being a college tennis player, they're professionals. I mean, that was mm-hmm. girls and guys. And that was something that Billy had taught me is that the, uh, what makes professional, whether you're a male or a female, the qualities are the same. How you approach your business, what you what you do day to day, how you um, orient yourself to your goals, and uh, I mean, there's a there's a few stories that stick out in my head from that time. Um, you know, one of them was uh, I went and was hitting with my very first day in Kiowa. I guess this was either '98. Uh, I, was, I think it was '98. I went out to practice with uh, Shanda Rubin, and this was my first time. I was just full of nerves and Billy was out there. She had this chapstick around her, her neck and yeah, effusive, enthusiastic energy. Just, you know, she was just such a presence about her, mm-hmm. um, which I had heard about from people before going out there, how much she would impact me and, and boy, did she ever, but you know, I was hitting and we were doing, you know, the standard little short court warm up. I was out there with Shanda and I'm at, you know, and we're going and going and about seven, eight minutes in, I'm wondering how long we're going to do it because in college we would do it for like four balls and then back up, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but we're, we're about eight, nine minutes in and I haven't oh. missed and I'm locked in. I missed one ball in the net and Billy just lays into me. You know, you are not allowed to miss. I mean, she just came after me. I tell the story to, to my, uh, my athletes. And just, uh, just, and I, and I was, from that point on, I was frozen. I couldn't hit a ball. I was like, what do you mean? I can't, I can't miss a ball. I can't do anything. I mean, but I realized over time because she would come after me every single time I missed. If Shanda missed, it was no big deal. But I don't think it was so much the miss. I think she was clued into my focus and um, was worried that I could focus at the, at this intensity level for, for long periods of time. And I think she was sensing that I would drift. And I think I was, I was wondering, you know, how long are we going to be doing this? Let's hit some balls, you know, let's go. <laughs> um, but she was, she was very, very particular about how you practice, um, where you're striking the ball. There was none of this sort of mindless hitting and where ball, you're not really thinking about where the ball is going and so on. And so after about two weeks of being in that kind of, under that kind of pressure, I found, I discovered uh, that I was hitting the ball better than I had in a long time. And I I started to wish that, you know, (laughs) I had coaching like that when I was, when I was younger, but I mean, there, there, most of the stories as far as Billy goes were, we would be on the court all day, you know, training, the girls would come in one at a time. You'd have, you know, maybe Lindsay, Serena, they'd come in and you'd work one-on-one with them. And we'd be out there until five, four or five at night. We'd go eat dinner, have some wine. And then we'd go up to our team room at night and the girls would go off to bed and Billy would sit here and, you know, tell us, tell me stories for four hours, whether it be Ancona, Italy, Madrid, just about her experiences in the sixties and the seventies. And she started cluing me into, um, 
uh, well, I mean, it, first of all, the, the structural elements that she had to deal with um, as far as the pro tour, that there was no avenue for, for women to be professionals and what, um, and right. civil rights movement and institutionally all the things that she had to deal with. But she also clued me into sort more subtle, you know, su- subtle double standards that uh, young women have to endure on a day-to-day basis and um, really rewired in some ways and clued me into things that I was just kind of taking for granted day-to-day that really laid down the foundation for, mm. you know, for, for my coaching philosophy. Um, so that was, uh, those are, those are experiences I will, I will never forget. Um, you know, one experience I had with, um, Lindsay Davenport, you know, for example, I mean, I tell these stories all the time to my kids, they get tired of them, but <laughs> I went to, <laughs> I went to Japan with her, and we get off the plane and we, we get up to the court and uh, she we hit for like five minutes. And this is for the Toyota Princess Cup. And she, you know, she, she was playing a match the next day. We were she was jet lagged. We were jet lagged. She just wanted to make it kind of kind of an easy practice. And we hit for a few minutes and then she said she hands me two duffel bags that she had a carry on. And she put them on the side of the court, um, I would say about 10 feet up from the baseline, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on the, on the ad side. And she said, just, just serve me some balls. And I just served balls to her for at least an hour where she was just trying to hit the ball through these two duffel bags mm-hmm. and was so locked in. And I, I remember asking her afterwards, me, I mean, we, you didn't hit, you didn't do serves, you didn't do volleys and so on. What's, what's up with that? I mean, why were you just hitting through those duffel bags? Cause it was just, she was so intent on that target, you know? And, um, it was just an amazing thing. She just said, well, I'm going to hold serve. She said, I'm going to win about 50% of the serves on the do side. If I can win 70, 80% of the points on the ad side, or, you know, on that side, I'm going to, I'm going to break serve every time. And I know if I can return the ball there, I'm going to win the point. (laughs) It's such a different way of looking at it, you know, a practice session, you know, it's sort of like a, a, a preemptive look at how maybe a Craig Shaughnessy looks at it. Before she knew that if she got control of that point, she mm-hmm. was going to win, and knew that 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 would would lay the foundation for her to win the match. It, it was just so different wow. than you know the hours and hours of cross court that we had been, <laughs> you know, trained to train to hit. I mean, it was just much more purposeful and. Um, so and mindful. And how, I could go on to how did she, all day. <laughs> yeah, how did she develop that purposefulness? Is is that something that was innate? Was that a um, our parent? Was it a coach? I mean, did you get any sense of how she developed that? Is that the way these the pros practice from my experience and I, and I got that because I, I had that experience with the top pros for a while. And then when right. I got out, when I left William and Mary, I was out there for about five years and the way it was just such a different way of practicing. Um, and it was much more about, well, first of all, serves and returns. I mean, the amount of serves and returns that people hit on the pro tour that we would hit on the pro tour and hitting them exactly where you're you have you're going to have to hit them right. to either set up your weapons 
Um, I mean, two inches, for, for example, uh, you know, one of my pet peeves is, is serving two targets, but not having, uh, you know, a lane that you serve through, for example, mm-hmm. on the do side, if you serve a, a T serve, if it, if it has a slice on it, it's going, by the time it hits the baseline, it's going to be a, you know, a body return right. as opposed to a stretch T, you know, so, so a matter of inches is everything. So really that, you know, a lot of people talk about uh, swing out to big targets. So if you have a couch size target, I guess, and the way I think the pros practice is, yeah, that eliminates the errors. We swing, we swing out two big targets, but a very small target within that big target. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's, that's always, so coming back into college tennis and seeing, you know, how serving and returning is just an afterthought, but it's really, it was really just this idea. And I really do think while not explicit in the sense that uh, Craig Shaughnessy talks about his first four shots and, you know, everything is about that. We all knew that if, if you hit that spot, you would be setting up your weapon Mm -hmm. and you'd be in control of the point. Right. And so I think that's how she prayed. She knew she didn't have the foot speed, you know, she didn't have, to, to scamper around the court, she needed to get control. So yeah. she was such a great ball striker that right. she knew that if she could do that, I think it was out of necessity more than anything. Yeah. So she she had the intellect and and the self awareness to understand, you know, why she was winning matches basically, or how she was gathering points, and and went about doubling down on that. So so have you been able to? I mean, obviously, you have been able to introduce some of those concepts successfully into the college game. Um, but are, are players resistant to, to that kind of deliberate focus practice initially because they are so used to kind of doing the cross courts and the corner drills and, and uh, not hitting as many serves and returns? Or, or how do you go about implementing some of those things that, that you've learned during your time on, on the Pro Tour? Well, I think that that's a you know that's a that's an evolution, but mm-hmm. we rarely play sets where we don't have a target for say a serving target. Like the point doesn't count unless you hit this area mm-hmm. um, with your serve. I, to me, the girls have not they haven't been resistant at all as long as they're they're educated as to why i mean we, we, we spend a lot of time why it's important i mean why if you stretch somebody on a wide serve mm-hmm. or a t serve on the outside and they can't get the outside of the the opponent can't get the outside of the ball we call that a fade what what kind of return is going to come from that i think people think about that a lot in terms of doubles um, you know, if I serve here, where is my net man going to go so he can pick off the ball or she can pick off the ball? But it's the same principle um, in in college tennis. Right. If you can set up your weapons off of your serve and get control of the point, if your forehand's your weapon and you know this serve is going to get that ball to your forehand, but if you miss it by a little, it might get to your backhand. That's uh, you know that's the that mm. could be the difference. That could be the difference in the point. But yes, I, I would say from a discipline perspective, um, I remember I remember when I was when I had had gotten out of college tennis after I was at William and Mary and was traveling around. I was I was 
stationed in Charlottesville, and I was very good friends with Mark Gilbo, who was the women's coach there at the time, and we went out and practiced with a couple of, of his players, and we started hitting serves and returns, and after about 10 minutes, the you know, the UVA girls were sort of, hey, we're good, we're good, <laughs> and Megan, the girl I was with, just kind of looked over and goes, what are they talking about? We haven't gotten started. You know, they, they were, I mean, Megan was used to practicing serves for an hour at a time. It's like, I'm going to hit that spot, darn it. You know, wow. just the, the mindfulness and the focus of it is just, mm-hmm. it's just so, so different um, out there uh, than it is college tennis. So hopefully, hopefully uh, that will change over time as, as we all get more educated. Yeah. Yeah. As we get, more educated but also as as kids attention spans become right you know more and more limited and, and their ability just to sit still i mean I, I have this battle with my 14 year old about about the phone and what restrictions to put on it but it's it's uh you can see that the kids they they struggle to just be with themselves in silence and <laughs> take a step back. But that's um, what a gift to be able with to give them. With detrimental effects, I would imagine. What's that? <laughs> I, I would say, I, what I say is, I would just, that's been the, the big change. I think that's yeah. what we're, we're dealing with now is yeah. this, this attention span idea with, this, right. with the iGen, the iGen generation has followed the millennials and yeah. they've grown up with, with these homes. Yeah, yeah but that's that's i mean that's what i was saying i mean it's it's such a gift to be able to give these players i mean if you can teach them through tennis to be still to be mindful to be more patient you know how much better off is are they going to be and 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 their mental health going into their 20s and 30s as well so it's uh yeah, yeah so that's kind of what i wanted to get into as well is you had this you know you were well connected within the pro world uh, probably could have, you know, spent the, all your career in the pro world if you want to do so. So why college tennis? Why why women's college tennis more specifically? Well, women's college tennis was directly linked with my experience with uh, with Billy, and I, I felt like I had a message that I could convey to to young women from my experience with Billy, a, a unique perspective, and I really. You know, as, as a young guy, I was sort of, uh, I, I thought that, you know, I could change the world, you know, we, I guess we go into those and let, let's, let's really provide an opportunity for women to be assertive and uh, in, in the little space that I have, um, it, it be intentional and not worry about the pressures that they're under, um, you know, uh, implicitly more so. Um as far as you know, their looks and those sort of things, we don't really talk about that at college tennis. But obviously, everybody knows that's a big pressure that they're under. But mm-hmm. sort of the expectations of how they're supposed to act and this idea that they're that they're fragile. You know, I, I was thinking about that. A, a good example a few weeks a few weeks ago, I think Derek Cahill and and Halep were made some uh, made some noise when he on uh, social media when he kind of laid into her right. about uh, her effort level. And, you know, I just, from, from my lens, I just would never imagine that if that were Leighton Hewitt, that would have gotten any noise. This mm-hmm. idea that these women can't handle, um, can't handle overt coaching and just in criticism is just something that I've never really bought into. And that, mm-hmm. that came, that came from, um, uh, Billy as well, this 
this idea that they're, that these kids are fragile. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, I, so I felt like I had a, a mesh that of assertiveness that I wanted to convey, assertiveness, intentionality, and, and to to women that you can you can do this too. Um, but as far as, as, as college tennis goes, I just, I never, I was never that guy that bought into uh, the glamor of the tour. Um, I just, it didn't really, it was nice to go to Wimbledon and, and those sort of things, but I just, it didn't really resonate with me as sort of this, it was a, it was a great experience, but it, it wasn't what I was passionate about. I was right. always passionate about player development and, that's been my passion from the beginning and systems associated with player development mm-hmm. and, and helping kids navigate difficult terrain and, and they're, and as they're, as they're moving through their lives. And I always thought as pro tennis and my experience with pro tennis was much more, uh, felt more managerial, I suppose you're negotiating uh, flights. You're making sure you have their practice courts. Uh, you make sure they have the right balls. You make sure the towels are there. Mm-hmm. And there was an asymmetry there as well that I did in terms of who's your, your, your customer is paying you, which is an interesting, she's not your customer, the bad way of putting it, I would no, say, I, but yeah, um, it, it's, it, she, she's paying you. And here you are in this position where you need to, at times you've got to criticize them. You're not doing this right. You, you know, you've got, We've got to get on this. We've got to do this. And it just, it creates some tension. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and you always knew there was no job security. You always knew you were one backhand wide, uh, <laughs> down the line wide from potentially losing your job because, you know, you were working on the backhand and she didn't feel confident with it. So right. I just, it never really, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time out there, but uh, I never, it never really resonated with me in the same way that being a part of a team being in one place and being able to have a cohesive message from day to day. And then college tennis was just more fun, to be honest. I mean, we had skin in the game. I mean, as coaches, we were part of the process. We're out there on the court. We're out there recruiting. Uh, it's uh, There's a sense of urgency that we're all in this together. There's nothing like competing as a team. And Billy, Billy agreed with that, too. I mean, that's where world team tennis – you know, came from. I just think it's a it's a it's a healthier venue mm-hmm. for for young people, and certainly resonated with me more as a developmental mindset. You know, sort of that's how that's how I was oriented. Right, right. So you were you coached in the pros a little bit. You were assistant at Alabama, um, assistant at Arizona, head coach at Fresno State. Then you moved on to to William and Mary. Um, so you you had that you're able to compare the pros and, and your experience as assistant as a head coach and a very successful head coach as well, but you still chose to then take a step away for, for five years before you returned to college tennis. So can you talk to us a little bit about that decision and, and why you decided to step away and maybe what you learned um, during those five years and, and how you're applying those lessons now to your time at USC? Well, the biggest thing, what it, it had been, it had been brewing within me. Uh, I had a, a sort of regret somewhere. Is this all I have? You know, as far as personally and professionally, I, I had studied hard. I was fascinated with with certain things associated with economics and entrepreneurship, and I was sort of, you know, I want to try something else. I mean, I started so young, right? And I did walk out of that 
that office, that finance office. And I, you always had that, that lingering doubt. And maybe, maybe I want to see something else. Is this all there is? Um, and it's, it's just where I was at the time. Um, I had some personal stuff going on. Um, that was kind of weighing on, weighing on me a little bit, my, uh, marriage and so on. And at the time, the, um, well, I, I had always, I'd always been afraid that if I left, I was, I was actually just thinking the grass was, was always greener on the other side. And that if I left, I would never get back in. If I wanted that opportunity, if I regretted that decision, um, and finally, finally took the plunge and I'm happy to report because I was really, I, I, it, the stress was really starting to get with me, I, to me and, uh, at Women Mary at times. I, I had panic attacks. I had to get off a plane once. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just, there was, there was one month in particular that we had 21 visits, um, official visits. We had a tournament that we were running and it was just this low frequency, Mm-hmm. indiscernible pressure that I didn't really, if you asked me at a, you know, walking down the street, Hey, Kevin, are you, are you feeling pressure? I said, no, no, I'm fine. But what I found out was when that panic attack hit was that it, it, it it's just this low frequency, constant stress that kind of wears on you and can, can, um, have uh, dubious effects to say the least. Um, so I decided, you know what, I, I called a friend of mine, I said, I want to, I'm potentially thinking about getting out. I probably will never be able to get back in. It's hard to get these jobs. And I said, should I go to business? Should I go to grad school and uh, economics? And he said, no, nah, if you want to, if you want to get out and you want to really learn about business and economics, go start a business, you know, go start one. I yeah. said, oh, okay. So, so I decided to start a bakery out in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> My wife at the time was, uh, I uh, was an architect. The economy had gone south, and there was all the jobs had dried up. And she had an opportunity out there, and we we moved out there. And I tried different things. I, I learned how to perfect a croissant. I'll say <laughs> I'll say that. But it was but it was uh, a really neat experience. But I uh, to, to to be honest, uh, I moved back to Charlottesville, and I was traveling in the ITF tour for a while. But to be honest, I didn't miss it. I didn't miss college tennis for a day not even, not one day mm-hmm. i was actually i was actually happy i was out of it because yeah. my evenings uh, i didn't have the stress of recruiting i could be in the present more mm-hmm. um, i felt like a, a a whole person again in some ways mm-hmm. and that's actually been really beneficial to me getting back in because i do know that i that it, you know if if the floor falls out beneath me I'll be all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I thank you so much for for sharing that, and and again can relate to that on on so many different levels. Stepping away from it and and having those concerns and and uh, recognizing that, um, yeah, college tennis is is great. It's it's important, but it's not the center of the universe like you think it is. And 
um yeah it's fascinating i'm sure for, for you to come back to it with that new perspective and having more presence of mind and and maybe understanding kind of some of your tendencies and being able to catch those tendencies and i think i think some coaches would be well served at times um doing maybe what you and i did and and recognizing that there are plenty of other opportunities out there for them if if they want to take a step away from college tennis and there'll be opportunities for them to get back in if that's really what they want to do so um yeah i, I don't think we'd encourage any anybody to to stay in a, in a profession that's causing them you know low-grade anxiety or panic attacks or, or um anything of that nature so no it's 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 brilliant that you share that with us kevin i i really appreciate that so so now you know now that you're you're back in it what do you believe your your role as a coach is now has that has that changed has that philosophy changed or or uh is it still very much how you operated in in 2000 as as your first year as a head coach of Fresno State? Well, I I, I feel very deeply about the lessons I I learned from Billy. So, I mean, my my primary role is the structural role, the role that is spelled out on my contract. Um, uh, they expect me to win. They expect me to. Uh, we're in the SEC. It's it's spelled out that way. Um, and that's what I get hired and fired on. Um, but that's not really, I mean, of course that's, that's important. But when I look back at my time at Fresno state, William and Mary, and I'm looking back at some of the athletes that have come through this program, the more meaningful stuff is, is the contact you have with some of the kids, I mean, I, like I said, I was 27. So when I was at Fresno State, so the kids that I was coaching uh, when, when you were there, I mean, gosh, they're mm -hmm. they're 40 now. I mean, or they're close to 40. I mean, yeah. and and I, I keep in touch with them and their stories and uh, and who they've become and the gratitude that they have for the experience they had in college tennis. I know you feel similarly about your time there and the growth through the suffering of you know having to work through and navigate these these you know it's tough i mean it's really tough it's really tough to have to be on every day and manage yeah. um your lives but what that does for for you long term and and the 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 messages of thanks i get are for you know creating environment where these young women felt like they could thrive and the the uh, the way I look at my job now, when you get right down to it, is that there's so much toxic messaging out there from the media, um, and these this idea that there are so many systemic forces out there that you can't succeed if you put your mind to it, and so much so much toxic messaging on social media for young women. I mean, anxiety and depression has been going up in relative terms, more for women than men over the last seven or eight years. Um, and I think college is responding that, to that now. Mm -hmm. um, but it's an, it's an alternative message that, that, that I feel like we have control over when these girls come to practice every day and we set goals and we show them that that not necessarily instant gratification or the expediency of, of decisions in the here and now, but long-term investment and, and trying to shoot for a goal and being held to standards every day um, 
and giving them different message in terms of assertiveness. I really believe that assertiveness and intentionality and courage is a message that we have to convey to young women um, and, and really, really push them to be that way, to make choices, to be courageous, to be brave, because there's so much messaging out there that that is is trying to, to kind of keep them in, I wouldn't say boxes, but they, they're supposed to act a certain way. Mm-hmm. Stuff that's edgy for a guy, um, stuff that is, you know, if a guy... If, well, we're talking about this in the in in some of our conference meetings right now. If a guy is loud and competitive, he's considered you know on a court when he's mm-hmm. playing, he's considered to be you know sort of a here. Look at that guy, what a competitor! And with, with the girls, it's sort of it's a little bit more ambiguous. It's sort of why is she doing? That? I guess the, the the cliche way of saying that when a guy is you know super assertive and and um, makes a stand, he's heroic. And when a girl does it, she is. Mm, the B word a little bit. Right, right. And it, these are low frequency things. These are things that people don't pick up on day to day, but it really has an impact on them. And I just, I, I really feel like my role is to help them find a way to be brave, to be courageous, to be assertive, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to pull a chair up to the table and say, I am here, mm-hmm. you know? So it's in those ways that I feel like that on a constant basis, we do a lot of meeting and uh, we have a lot of discussions and a lot of give and take. And I think it's through that process. And over the course of time, three, four years, they really become stronger young women. And uh, at least that's been my experience, not all the time, but um for, for a lot of these young women that achieve where they thought that they couldn't for a while and they get back to me and tell me the stories of how courageous they are in, in negotiating mm-hmm. salaries that, uh, or standing up to people. I remember a young lady, uh, Claudia Castellaniac, was working for a French firm and um, they weren't exactly treating her appropriately and she, she stood up to them and said, I'm out of here. She, she stood up for that self-respect. She stood up for her own self-respect and said, this is not how I deserve to be treated. I'm gone. And uh, she at one point called me and thanked me, you know, to help her with that kind of bravery. Mm, I, self-efficacy. I mean, the, the idea that y- you have competency over what you do day to day, that, that relationship of, Hey, I showed up to the courts. I don't feel well to meet this stent over time, they realize that they can meet that standard and they can work hard, even though they really, really didn't feel like it when they came down and they start to get more confidence mm-hmm. over their capacities to, to um, navigate, you know, uh, their no- emotional situation sometimes. So, yeah. um, and they just gain confidence and they become stronger over time. And I just, I just feel like they get such poor messaging out there and it's right. just, it's, it's great. It's great that they, we have that, that opportunity to right. um, create this avenue for them. So have you been able to lean into that some more since, since returning to college tennis, or you feel like you've always kind of made that the center of your program and, and your coaching philosophy? 
Well, the problem, the problem now is that there, there, what's really changed in college tennis, even since I've been here in 2012, like I said, anxiety and depression in, in men and women or boys and girls is going up yeah. dr- dramatically since 2011. And colleges are responding and universities are responding and student athlete welfare is becoming a, a major issue. How do we handle this crisis? Um, and so when, when I first was hired here in 2012, my SWA told me, look, this is your team. Do whatever you want. We'll back you. And three years later, it wasn't that messaging at all. So, um, the messaging was, Hey, you know, we, we've got to make sure that, that your kids feel like they're in a productive environment and it's a little bit more nebulous. And, and I think it's sort of made coaches feel like, oh gosh, I could get fired at, at any moment. So we had to find creative means to create urgency. Um, like, there's no more real punishment running anymore. When I first came in, I was sort of that authoritarian, hey, you're going to run, you're going to do this. Hey, don't ask questions. Uh, you know, This is what we do. And and we've had to find more creative means to to create that urgency, and we've done a lot of that through communication. I think that's absolutely critical. Is that a lot of these kids just need to communicate? I mean, you can convince them to work hard. It doesn't have to be yeah. this sort of hammer coming down on them. You, you, you sit with them. You take the time that's important to you. Explain why. Explain why standards are important to have. You have team meetings, um, and slowly but surely you can create a culture um that has very high standards that doesn't have that 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 sort of punishment associated with it that all of us old school coaches used to associate you know Hagerty. Yeah, Gosh, he was the king of it. There you go. Come on, Dave. Let's go. Bring it. Hundred hundred yard spread. I'm still recovering, uh, mentally and yeah, physically. But... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember that. You were not a fan. Uh, I think he broke your back. Uh, he did something to my back. So, uh, but no, it's 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 that fine line, and and it's uh, you see that's the thing. I, I look back on that and I wouldn't change a second of it because. Yes, even though physically I, I was broken down by my senior senior year, mentally I was so much more resilient, and, and right. those lessons have have stood well t- to me throughout my life. And and that's, uh, but but you know, uh, that's the thing. I, I I I didn't realize that I responded to that type of coaching. I didn't realize that that type of coaching would bring the best out of me, but it did. And so, yeah, it's how do you how do you find the Dave Mullins that actually will respond to that and will benefit greatly from it and give him what he needs versus the other person right. who needs a maybe a, a softer touch. And and I thought I needed a softer touch like you weren't yeah, there my freshman year, but Hegarty wanted to ship me out and and uh, oh, he told me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> couldn't couldn't uh, just I was soft and all the rest of it. And you saw me by my junior senior year i was uh yeah i was a little tougher you were a stud yeah well yeah thank you but but it was well, uh the stud, you were the match i'll never forget was and i, I Haggerty and i talk about this all the time because on that day that he took me to the uh 
the Holiday Inn, I think it was, and we were sitting in that room. He was talking about you, saying, "Yeah, I got this Irish guy, kind of soft." And, and I, I started to notice that you were pretty resistant to Haggerty. Mm-hmm. You know, you just this guy doesn't. But I'll never ever forget that match that you played against SMU, which was my alma mater, and Carl was my coach. Oh yeah. And you were playing a guy, I think he was like 320 in the world or yeah, some crazy level. And, yeah. um, and the fans were yelling, Carl was yelling. I mean, it was everything, just a mayhem college match could be, you know, it was a whack championship match and it came down to your court. <laughs> and I just remember you won that thing, 7-6 in the third and it, it, the whole world exploded and Haggerty was forever in your corner from that moment on because you had turned the corner and you did show, you did show that you had a steeliness to you because I mean, you were playing at an extremely high level and that was just, that's what college tennis is all about. And I'm sure that's indelibly engraved in your, in your memory at this point, but no, a really sure. neat time. And definitely yeah. you grew, you grew a lot. No, I, absolutely. And it's, and that's, that's the thing. How, how, yeah. How, how do we find that, that sweet spot? in those players and then how do yeah how do we stay patient with those players as well i mean like i said hegarty did want to get rid of me i i was stubborn enough to stay and and i think in that second year i was uh you know one more matches than than anybody else in the team but if he had got rid of me and i'd gone elsewhere uh you know it was just can coaches just be a little bit more patient and give their players maybe one more one more year to to have that breakthrough but i know it's 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 a challenge and and i don't don't envy you guys uh trying to uh <laughs> navigate that um so switching gears a little bit i mean where where like we alluded to earlier i just i felt like you've always kind of stayed ahead of the curve a little bit and and so where does technology and and analytics sit in your program is this have you engaged with technology more and more through the years or or is that something that you're still unsure about or, or where does it fit? No, I, yeah, I think every year we're, tra- we're a little bit behind in some regards. Uh, I was down in Florida and I was watching a guy use PlaySite. I mean, our technology, our on-court technology, we use a lot of sidewalk chalk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, we believe very much in <laughs> patterns and, uh-huh. and, and where to hit the ball. And, um, but PlaySight does a lot of that for you. So we're, and I don't know how many coaches are actually using PlaySight for that purpose, for the, for the training and the targets and all of that, but we would certainly do that. Um, so we're working on getting that, uh, as far as analytics go, Warren Pretorius and, uh, Craig Shaughnessy do great work with that. Obviously Craig stuff is kind of paradigm shifting mm-hmm. in terms of how you practice, if you approach it the right way. Um, so, but we, we've really, do, we've really, one of the things that we've done is we've gotten into this, the ball machines. And one of the stories I remember from college was, um, and this was Carl was working, Carl Newfeld, my coach, who we were talking about just a minute ago, played at USC. And he was telling us the story of Wayne Black, who did not make the team at USC his freshman year, but every morning at 6 a.m. he was on the ball machine uh, for an hour and a half five days a week working on his forehand and by his sophomore year he was not only number one on the team he was number one in the nation with one of the biggest forehands and and i think that repetition is something that as far as sort of technical development the confidence that you can get from doing something over and over but 
we we got into ball machines some time ago. We've been using we have four of them. We use them for returns. We use them for a lot of our pattern work. We've been doing that for a while. And the way they operate now is you can actually have an app for them right. that I can program a ball machine on my phone, and I and I can store that drill in a folder. Say it's like you know Karen's folder, and I want and I do a lesson with her working on her forehand or working on a forehand pattern. I can ask her, hey, so if you want to work on it, come out tomorrow, click on your folder, click on that drill, mm. and you can do some of the rep work um, on your own. So that's been a really important part of, of our development philosophy, using those things. I can't recommend them enough. Yeah. Um, and the other one was been, uh, obviously, was the heart rate training. Um, and at the convention just recently, Paul Drake was there, and he, he started uh, here at South Carolina um, a cardio expert. He was working as an air traffic controller in Chicago, but he, uh, he had a lot of experience with heart rate training, and he had a connection with a parent on our team. So we were using the technology, but we weren't very good at it, and we weren't very knowledgeable about it. So we brought him in, and he helped us um, a lot in terms of understanding recovery. That That's the thing that I don't think a lot of coaches are aware of yet. And I was extremely resistant to when he started, you know, uh, pitching his spiel to me about heart rate training is, you know, you, you're going to have to really calm down as far as what you do on court. And I always thought that that language was more politically correct. Language it was sort of a coddling language and yeah, old school coaches. We don't, yeah. we don't believe in that. You know, we got to work harder and, and it really was hard for me to get out of that old mindset. But once I started seeing the results, because technology would spit out the results, we were using first beat and we were doing morning heart rates and started to realize, I mean, there were times in the SEC and we were taking two days off, you know, four years ago, which people at that time would have just thought was unheard of. Right. Get back Sunday night. I'll see you Wednesday and we're going to leave Thursday. Mm. Um, it was always, we didn't win. We're going to work harder. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem with that is the emotional fatigue. The, it's not just physical. It's the emotional fatigue. It's the, the mental fatigue. It's getting home at 12 o'clock on a Sunday night and having to be at class in the eight, eight in the next, next morning. And you, you're behind in your work. I mean, you're not recovered by Tuesday morning. I mean, just, right. you're just not. And you can see that data in, in the, um, and the uh, heart rate now. So we, we really dove in, in particular, last year and uh, at the SEC championship match, our uh, you know our resting heart rate as a team average was uh, 42, which oh my god, really low. Yeah, Two years amazing. before we were in the high 50s. So yeah, uh, and that was largely attributed to to rest and and diving into that heart rate technology. And now I, I feel like a lot of people are are using at least first beat or some, some heart, uh, heart rate system to, to monitor. And, to, and there's a lot of schools that are utilizing, uh, Paul Drake's knowledge as well. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're open to, to all sorts of, uh, new technologies and new applications and trying to find a way, um, to get an edge for sure. Yeah. It's funny as, as we talked about, you know, both of us stepping away from, from college tennis, one of the things I did when I when I moved back to Ireland was actually start competing again and enjoying tennis for myself, which I, I never thought I would. But um, you know, it was it was fascinating to to 
actually start trying to apply some of the things that I, I had been coaching and, and talking about for, for, you know, 12, 13 years. But one of the things mm -hmm. I recognized was just how much of a toll competition took on me and, and underestimated the buildup to competition the night before, the day right. of, that nervous energy. And then when you get into close situations, and I'm just playing, you know, money tournaments. These aren't, you know, important college matches sure. or anything. But but it was it was fascinating then to reflect upon that and go, oh my God, I, I've forgotten how much matches, you know, differ from from practice and, and training and how much they how much of a toll it actually takes on your body. And and I wish I had you know, given my players more time off, especially in the season right. after, you know, um, yeah, actually being able to comprehend that myself. So, um, anyway, I've, I've, I know we're, we're running way over time, but I think we could go all day here. I'll just, uh, let sure. me find, find one more question for you. What, what, what mistake do you see young coaches make, whether it be on court recruiting or something else that maybe you, you you find a little cringeworthy or wish they did not do is there is there any anything you're seeing young coaches doing that you'd advise them hey you know you might want to reflect upon that or, or do something a little differently oh one thing we talk about i i don't know about cringeworthy <laughs> um i i do see a a trend that is really bothersome to me um and that is what i would call reactive coaching and i think yeah, for for us coaches, I'm 47 now, so I've been doing this a long, long time. Coaches like Sheila Mack and Ronnie and Lily and the two Jeffs in the SEC conference, Roland. We've been doing this a long, long time, yeah. and we have pretty well articulated philosophies, and we feel pretty comfortable in our skin. And we know our programs and every year is, you know, a rinse and repeat. We, we kind of get rid of the things that didn't work and we, we hold on to the things that did and try to get better. But these younger coaches that are moving into this, um, this, this new era, the student athlete welfare era where, um, where they are also responsible for keeping them happy, happy for uh, a lack of a better way mm. of expressing it, because they're worried about losing their jobs. Quite frankly, mm. um, they're afraid if if one of their players runs up to uh, the, the AD's office that they're going to be in trouble. Things that we would never dream of going going to the AD's office. But mm. when we were coming up. Um, the messaging that is coming from the administrations and college athletics in general are uh, can make coaches very nervous, uh, and particularly ones that have not articulated their philosophies and don't have the experience. So they become very reactive, and I see a lot of reactive coaching. I see a lot of coaches that are that are reluctant to. Um, impose a value system that the that the kids have to aspire to or they're held respond you know mm -hmm. held um to account in that regard that they have to show up and they have to do these things and have i think it's more a lot of times you see um kids at practice they don't feel well and the coach is trying to accommodate them and what happens is it just creates a completely reactive environment. There's nothing that anybody can sink their teeth into in a fearful environment. 
and I just think it's it's a real disservice. I think it's a balance. You were talking about balance earlier. I think it's a really balanced, uh, important balance to figure out that, you know, we are actually a more experienced people than these 18 to 22 year old kids. And yes, and there are situations, anomalous situations where these kids are pushed too far um, or the coach loses his cool or her cool and, and things get a little bit out of hand at times. Um, but I think it's really important that coaches have a strong foundation of standards um, that are bigger than bigger than any one player. A good a good example of this, and this is another lesson Billy taught me. We were in Ancona, Italy, and Venus and Serena uh, were undecided whether they were going to play Fed Cup that year, and we were waiting. We were all there. We were training every day. It was coming down to the wire and we were pretty sure that they were going to bail on us the, the last day. And Billy was just a nervous wreck. I mean, she was pacing around the hotel room. She really wanted to have these kids here. She really wanted to make an impact on them. She really wanted our team to win. And at the very last minute, they called and said, we'll be there in the morning. And she was ecstatic. I mean, she threw a pillow in the air. <laughs> wow, this is awesome. They're coming. They're coming. You know, just if you know anything about Billy, I mean, her enthusiasm, she, she gets so enthusiastic. So, so anyway, they show up and Billy calls a meeting at uh, nine in the morning and they show up about five minutes late and um, we're sitting there and Billy starts talking to them and, you know, talking to all of us and saying, Hey, you know, this is, this is what the program is going to be for the week. This is going to be the training program. We're going to meet at 8.30 in the morning, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Serena, Serena just said, oh, wait one second here. Um, I don't, I don't be on, I'm not going to be on the court until, until 11. That's not when I practice. Mm-hmm. And you could just, you could feel the tension in the room. It was palpable, you know. <laughs> and Billy finally looked straight in the eye and said, you're on my team. You will be here at 8:30 in the morning. No questions asked. <laughs> and we would just all sort of sit there, like, "Oh my gosh!" You know, we just—it yeah. was just one of those moments. And Serena paused for a second and looked at Billy and said, "Okay, I'm there." And when they left, Billy just kind of dropped on her on the desk, and she's like, "That was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life." <laughs> but the message is there. You know, she was the messaging there is that the team standards, the team values, what we're going to do is bigger than anyone. And I just think that's a, a message that's lost on a lot of these young coaches. Uh, I, I see it a lot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I just hope that administrations moving forward as well, give, give some backing to the coach that they're not as reactive, you know, either. I mean, right. that, that every, every issue a, a, a kid has, I mean, just imagine you, you know, if you had an outlet, your sophomore year, your freshman year, where you could penalize Hagerty somehow, <laughs> maybe you would have escaped it, but you mm. wouldn't have learned those lessons that you would have learned over that three to four year period of time. And I just, right. I just think this reactivity is 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 a real problem. And I, and I hope that uh, we're going to have to be creative in this new era in terms of finding ways for urgency. But yeah. it's something that that definitely bothers me. 
Yeah, well, Kevin, we, we could go all day. I think we'll, we're going to have to do a round two at some point. But uh, I, uh, I really enjoyed this. And, and uh, I hope that you stay in college coaching for a really long time and don't go back to baking baguettes and croissants for, uh, for uh, the locale. So, so uh, keep at it, please. And, and best of luck in the spring. And, and uh, excited to learn more from you in, in the future. Thanks so much, Dave. I really appreciate it. Glad you're back with us. Okay, thank you. Thank you, as always, for listening. We have many great coaches lined up for 2020 to come on the show. Don't forget to share the Tennis for America details with your student-athletes and be sure to look out for some upcoming webinars. All announcements and registration links can be found on our bi-monthly coach education newsletter, so please let me know if you're not receiving that.